Welcome to the What's Your Drive podcast, where we talk all things Hirschbach and the trucking industry. Join us each week as we talk about news, safety, industry topics, tips and tricks, and more. And now your host, Bianca Sanchez. Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the What's Your Drive podcast. Uh, On Tuesday, March 24th, we had visitors from the Grand River Medical Center in Dubuque, Iowa, join um, our CEO and President Brad Pinchuk for a live town hall broadcast. So Justin Hafner, who's the CEO from the Grand Grand River Medical Center, and Dr. Ron Iverson uh, sat down for about an hour and talked to us about what's going on with COVID-19 and answered questions that came in from our employees and drivers and their families. And uh, most importantly, they separated some fact from fiction for us and also gave us some tips on ways that we can stay protected and protect others during this time. So have a listen, enjoy. If you have questions after uh, listening to this podcast, you can direct them my way at the uh, website, whatsyourdrive-podcast.com. Just send a message over that form and we'll be happy to get some answers for you. Thanks. All right, Hirschbach. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we've got a couple of special guests. Um, I've got uh, Dr. Ron Iverson. Uh, and uh, and Justin Hafner from uh, the Grand River Medical Center here in Dubuque. And uh, they're here to uh, educate all of us on uh, the coronavirus and what we can do to uh, make sure we understand what the symptoms are and how we can protect ourselves and protect each other uh, from this virus. And I know a lot of you have already sent questions in. Uh, We'll be getting to those questions. Uh, If you uh, wanna send in additional questions uh, they'll be coming in live and we will uh, get through uh, all the questions that we can how many do we have so far Bob three so far okay we've only got three questions so far so it won't take too long but uh, no I'm sure there'll be uh, lots of other questions coming and we'll uh, look forward to uh, seeing what those questions are I know we've got uh, today we've got drivers on we've got mechanics on folks in our spotting operations our offices and uh, other people family members as well and just to remind everyone um, if you're not uh, able uh, to stay on the entire call um, you can uh, watch a recorded version of it by just clicking on the same link uh, that you are clicked on here and certainly if you weren't able to get on at all uh, you were able to do that so we're going to start off uh, Dr. Iverson is going to start off by uh, uh, giving us a good baseline of understanding of the coronavirus and how it spread and how to best protect ourselves and so forth before we get into the detailed questions thanks Tom. thanks Brad and so first let me uh, say hi and and thank you for letting us join you uh, today along with Justin so I'm a physician Justin's our chief executive officer at the Grand River Medical group and first we want to thank you for everything that you're doing because without you folks out on the road bringing the supplies what Justin and I are doing uh, we can't do and so we look at it as uh, we are all in this together and I wanted to to take this opportunity to share a little bit of what the current thinking the current knowledge is 
Uh, if I don't know the answer to any of your questions, I will be honest with you. This is a very fast moving area and we're all doing our best to try and stay up to date. Uh, I've seen a couple of the questions already. They're very good questions and we'll get to those in just a minute. But again, if I don't know the answer, I will be honest with you. The information I'm going to give you today is the best that we understand it at this point in time. It may change in a week, two weeks, a month from now. So we may need to do some further updates uh, as we go along. And it's really kind of amazing to a little over three months ago, this coronavirus or COVID-19 as we refer to it, really wasn't even in our language. This is a brand new virus. I think probably everyone's aware, we, we know that it started in China. It's a group or one of a group of viruses called coronavirus, which actually some of those viruses that are cousins to it cause things like the common cold. And there are other cousins or relatives to it that can cause fairly severe illness, one of which is called SARS, another which is called MERS that were uh, smaller epidemics uh, sometime in the past. But nonetheless, this is a virus that unfortunately is fairly contagious. The good news is, is that for the majority of the people who get coronavirus, current statistics somewhere in the 80% range tend to have mild illness. Typically starts as upper respiratory symptoms, nasal stuffiness, sore throat, fever, aches, just kind of common viral flu-like illnesses. Unfortunately, about maybe 20% or so of people then may go on to progress to a little more severe or sometimes quite severe respiratory illness. Those are the sorts of things that you're seeing on the news media. Those are the things that unfortunately caused kind of the tragic consequences that we're seeing in Italy right now. And so much of what you're seeing and what our public health experts to the best of their ability are trying to empower us to do is to see if we can slow down the spread of the virus so for that those people who do become severely ill, those of us in the healthcare field will have the capacity to take care of them. And so just where the public uh, recommendations, the recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control and our administration go, that's again gonna be kind of an evolving process as we move forward. But up till now, that's part of what some of the things that we'll talk about next, how do we kind of prevent or slow the progression of, of a fairly contagious virus. And so what we understand now, to the best of our thinking, is that the virus is actually spread by what we call large droplets. So if I were to cough or to sneeze and I had the virus, those basically uh, secretions from my cough or from my sneeze might go as far out as six feet. So they could land on the table that's in front of me. Or if someone is seated within six feet of me, they would be at high risk of getting basically exposed to the virus. The virus just doesn't come in through the skin. Uh, it's basically absorbed through what we call the mucous membrane. So your mouth, your eyes, your nasal cavity. So that's the other thing is when we hear the recommendations to try and not touch your face or your mouth, if you happen to have virus on your hands, that's how you're going to get basically exposed and then infected with the virus. So for those of you that are out on the road doing that critical job of delivering the things that we need, what we want you to do as best as you can is a lot of hand washing, sterilizing the surfaces that you may come in contact with, keeping your distance from others. So again, if you walk next to someone and with you within six feet, the likelihood of you getting exposed to the virus is very small, okay? Uh, if that person were infected and coughing, the risk is gonna be higher. So it's all kind of relative risk. So I don't want you to be overly afraid of just simple tasks that you need to do in daily life 
What you want to do is just be smart. Where you can, sanitize the surfaces that you're in contact with. It doesn't need any special sanitizing solution that you need in terms of washing your hands. Soap and water works great. It's just not quite as convenient as some of the hand sanitizers that you uh, have access to or potentially can have access to in the future. But the soap, the water, the sanitizer basically gets the virus off your hands. That makes it less likely because we know how easy it is to touch our eyes, to touch our face. It's just kind of reflex behavior. Trying to minimize those sorts of activity is really important. Again, a lot of studies going on, like if the virus ends up on a surface, how long does it stay there? And again, we're still learning about that, but probably on hard surfaces, it's gonna last longer, maybe up to a couple of days, versus softer, more porous surfaces, probably less likely. Uh, again, uh, it's, a, it's a function of how much of the virus is on the surface and then how much gets on you and then whether you expose yourself to it. So again, sterilizing, sanitizing surfaces, limiting contact, keeping distance those are all the things that we know do work to decrease the chance of you getting uh, the coronavirus and if you do get the coronavirus again for the majority of people the illness is going to be mild we know that some people are at a little higher risk those are people with underlying uh, chronic illnesses diabetes for example people that have what we call immunocompromised conditions so if you've been on medications that suppress your immune system and most likely if you're taking those medicines you'll know that but if you've just had cancer chemotherapy if you certain take certain medicines if you have rheumatoid arthritis some of those medicines can have effects on your immune system. If you're not certain if your medications affect your immune system, touch bases with your physician and they can help guide you. Now again, that again doesn't mean that uh, you're necessarily gonna get sicker if you get coronavirus. These are all again risk spectrums. And so basically try and help people that are at higher risk, elderly, people with underlying conditions, maybe be a little bit more studious in terms of um, obeying these conditions to minimize your risk of exposure uh, to the virus. Uh, you're seeing, for example, President Trump yesterday talking about potentially medications for treating the virus. Right now, any medications that we have for treating any virus are very limited. So some of the things that you may have heard him talk about, one of which is called chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine in conjunction with an antibiotic that's commonly used called azithromycin or a ZPAC. There are some what we call anecdotal, meaning isolated, small number of studies uh, or patients that have received these medications, which make it look like possibly this could be favorable. It should not be interpreted that we have a medication that we're gonna be able to go to the pharmacy and get and it's gonna cure the virus. Viruses are traditionally more difficult to treat than a bacterial infection, which respond to antibiotics. But nonetheless, we are hopeful, whether it be some medicines, some other newer medicines that are hopefully being developed. Uh, things like vaccines, unfortunately, take a while to develop. So realistically, we're probably not going to have a vaccine inside of a year and maybe longer. Obviously, we'd be delighted if that were sooner. But realistically, that's just how long it takes to develop these sorts of things. So stay tuned for some of these trials that are being started with hydroxychloroquine and Zithromax. It would be a blessing if they turned out to be very helpful. It is just too early uh, to, to say at this point. So hopefully at this point, I've given you a little sense of kind of that it's a virus, it's a contagious virus. Most people tend to have minor symptoms, a subgroup do not. Anticipate in the near future here in the United States, things are going to look worse before they get better. 
Part of that is, is that we were a little slow to the game to be able to test people suspected of having coronavirus to confirm whether they have it or not. Those tests are becoming more readily available now, but because we had a period of time where we couldn't test and there was a period of time before we instituted some of the measures that we currently have in place, we know that there are people that are infected. So the things that we're doing now, the social distancing, more attention to keeping our hands clean, the things that we know can put us at risk, that's going to take a little time to show up in the statistics. So don't be, I shouldn't say don't be worried. I mean, we're all concerned when we're seeing the numbers go up. Unfortunately, that probably wasn't something that's unexpected. What we're hopeful for is the things that we're doing now are going to pay off the dividends in the relatively uh, near future. So uh, Brad, were there other things just off the top that you wanted me to touch before? Well, a lot of people on here are drivers um, and uh, certainly they're concerned about uh, being able to protect themselves from the virus. Um, certainly all of us need to do all the, you know, washing our hands regularly and, and so forth. Um, any, so what, common thing what about, using gloves? What about gloves. using gloves? Is yeah. that, that going to protect them? Yeah, so using gloves can be very helpful. But again, remember when you take your gloves off, not to expose it. So you have to know how to take the gloves off. So you take it off with one glove and then at the tip of the glove, take it off with the other hand and then don't touch the gloves. Make sure you have a receptacle that you can put the gloves in because if you're using the gloves to protect yourself and then you touch the gloves when you throw them away, you just expose yourself to the virus. But yes, absolutely nothing wrong with gloves. They give an extra layer, but then just always remember how easy it is to touch other things and periodically use your sanitizer, washing your hands. For example, at the office, we're periodically sanitizing the surfaces that we work at, the doorknobs, just things that we commonly touch that we may not always think to wear a glove or to protect ourselves in doing that. Another common question we get is, you know, whether we should be using masks or not. So where masks come into play is that if you're having any respiratory symptoms, if you wear a mask, if you were to cough or to sneeze, that's going to prevent your potentially infected droplets from being uh, coming into contact with others. Wearing a mask doesn't really help you from getting the virus and inhaling it because that's currently thinking that's not the typical way that we get the virus, that it's just kind of floating in the air. Now again, in all honesty, there are some studies that are showing, for example, in an intensive care unit where uh, we're doing procedures that may what we call aerosolize some of the uh, secretions that potentially we could breathe in the virus. So again, you may read in coming weeks and months that that is a potential mode of transmission, but right now we do not think that that is the most common or likely way that people are developing coronaviruses. So certainly nothing wrong with wearing a mask. They're a little hard to come by. Uh, if you're wearing it just to kind of protect yourself from others, the benefit probably isn't great. But if you have any, you know, common cold symptoms, haven't been tested, wearing that does decrease the likelihood that you could expose someone else until you're either tested for it or symptoms are resolved. So again, availability for testing. Uh, right now, we're testing people who are at higher risk, who have potential exposures, uh, more essential personnel. Risks, uh, the tests are becoming more readily uh, available. Not anytime in the future, we're likely gonna be just testing everybody, but we may get to that point. 
recommendations now from the public health officials on who we test are kind of being looked at and potentially being revised. So keep in touch and pay attention to kind of what the latest recommendations are as kits become widely available. What are the guidelines now? I mean, someone's got symptoms, you know, we hear about shortness of breath, um, we hear about a uh, low-grade fever. So again, the common presenting symptoms are just kind of common cold flu-like symptoms, stuffiness, raspy throat, uh, itchy, scratchy eyes. And then as it progresses, it may develop into what we call more lower respiratory symptoms. So that's your deeper cough, productive of sputum, sense of shortness of breath, just discomfort breathing. So those are all symptoms that would be considered reasonable to test uh, for the coronavirus. Uh, if you have a high likelihood of being exposed to someone and it's important to know whether you have the virus before you go out, that would be reasonable. Now again, these likely are gonna be undergoing some changes. There are some people that are advocating just because of limited supplies. If you have these symptoms and you don't need to be out and about and you're not acutely ill that you just self quarantine at home, and if your symptoms worsen and we need to know whether you have coronavirus or not to dictate the best treatment, then your healthcare provider may recommend you getting treated. But we're starting to lean away a little bit from just testing everybody. But again, truly in all honesty, these are recommendations that are being reevaluated on a daily basis. And so that's kind of the best that I can do. I know it's a little murky, it's a little cloudy. I wish I could give you a little clearer, straightforward answer. It's just one of those areas that this is such a fast moving uh, process that that we're getting a little conflicting messages from different uh, experts and we're trying to get those together to come up with the best recommendations for testing. With limited supplies of testing, I'm wondering, might certain critical professions, being a doctor, uh, being a truck driver, yep. moving uh, medical yep. supplies and food around the country, yep. might you decide to, based on their profession, to? Yeah, so that's, that's a great point. And so again, part, especially folks like you who are literally across the country, depending on where you're at, you may get different recommendations where you are. For example, if you're in or near New York City where the virus is much more prevalent, you may get a different recommendation than if you were in uh, Northern Oklahoma where it's a much more rural population and we don't see the level of disease. So some of it's a little bit dependent on where you're at and the prevalence of the disease. But again, to Brad's point, I think it's reasonable for what we call essential providers, healthcare professionals, truckers, uh, the people that we need to maintain the supply line I think those are people who are going to have a higher index of suspicion and testing for than people who, you know, a college student who's otherwise young, healthy, has some respiratory symptoms, can just stay home and isolate themselves, probably isn't going to be at the top of the list of someone we recommend getting testing at this point. That's good. Uh, fortunately, uh, at Hirschbach, uh, we've had five drivers tested so far, and uh, none of them have come back positive. Yeah. Uh, we do have a, a Corona hotline uh, that we set up, Great. and uh, so uh, and Amanda is kind of running that. And so you heard. I mean, if we run into a problem with one of our drivers out there and that they're not providing a test, we need to kind of play the essential yeah. card here and yeah. see if we can get one. Yeah. Good. And so again, you know, if you're on the road and you start to get some symptoms, you know, just take a few extra precautions. You know, if you have extra access to a mask, I know they're not easy to come by until you're able to get tested or checked out. That's a reasonable thing to do. Keeping your distance a little bit more because if you do, the likelihood you'll infect someone else 
until we can get things sorted out. That gives uh, kind of, you know, a less probability of that happening. They're kind of common sense sorts of things, which again, when we're living in a high stress time and things are happening and changing quickly, it's easy for me to say, but you know, rely on your instincts and common sense along with the things that we can share with you. And I think those are the sorts of things that are gonna get us through these times uh, um, as we move ahead. Yeah. One of the things that we've done with the five drivers that have uh, tested is after they've had the test, we've had them self-quarantine in their yeah. trucks until they get the results so we don't unnecessarily expose them to, yeah. to someone else. So the current recommendations for if someone is diagnosed, and it's likelihood that at some point someone is going to get tested positive. We're uh, starting to see that in our community here in Dubuque, the numbers are starting to go up. So for essential personnel, people that we really need to have in the workforce, we're saying that you need to have at least seven days uh, transpired from when your symptoms first started. So if I first started noting symptoms today and then uh, was diagnosed, we need at least seven days after uh, the symptoms first appeared. We need at least three days of having no fever, and that's no fever without taking medicines like Tylenol or ibuprofen uh, that can affect your body's response to fever. So three days without medicines that alter uh, your, your possibility of having a fever, and then improvement in symptoms. So the three criteria that we're currently using for essential personnel to return uh, to the workforce. Okay. And again, in a week, two weeks from now, those can potentially change. So again, what I'm sharing with you now is kind of our current understanding, our current knowledge, uh, and how we're approaching it. That's good information. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. And now there's another protocol that's using it, testing's available to then have two of the coronavirus test by a nasal swab uh, that uh, separated by 24 hours that are negative. But again, access to testing isn't always easy or readily available. So there's a, these alternate guidelines that we have available at this point. Now, when we talked the other day uh, about the symptoms, you had uh, mentioned uh, sort of a magic temperature. Yep. Yep. So, so again, we commonly use, you know, having a fever. Well, what's a fever? Is it just one tenth of a point above normal? So, kind of the criteria, the guideline that we're using is a hundred point four. So, if you're that or above, we would consider you having a fever. Now, again, these are always a little bit arbitrary. If you're a hundred point two and you're feeling crummy and having a lot of symptoms, you know, use again common sense. You're going to have a little higher index of suspicion that there might be something going on here because two hours from now it might be. 100.4, 100.5. So, but you have to have some cutoff. So that's the one that we're using currently, 100.4. Is there anything magical like, okay, I don't have a dry cough or, or something? You know, you talk about the different symptoms. Do you have to have them all, or could you just have one of them? Or so, great question. And so, yes. So you you don't have to have have all of them. And typically, it's a progression. So you may start off just with a little scratchy throat, and then the nose gets a little runny, and then uh, if you're lucky, that's all it all the worse it gets. So we've seen reports where people have it in 24 hours, they're already feeling better, their sore throat's getting better. You know, those are those milder cases. When it's not, then it can progress a little bit further and you may start getting a little deeper cough, a little more shortness of breath. That means the inflammatory reaction in the lungs is, is getting worse. And so for the people that do become severely ill, uh, we think there's one of two things going on, that it's actually the virus that's attacking the lungs that's causing the problem or strange as it may sound, it's our immune system that's mounting the response that actually kills the virus 
then also causes this inflammation in our normal lung tissue and allows the lungs not to work normally. And those are the small percent of people that then if they progress are the ones that need hospitalizations and potentially uh, the ventilators. And so that's what we're trying to minimize is the number of people exposed so it's fewer people that could develop those sorts of symptoms. But definitely you don't have to have all of the symptoms. It can be subsets of those. There's some interesting studies that are coming out that for a number of people, some of their early symptoms are actually diarrhea and loose stools. Now, again, this is still kind of new coming out, but it does appear that that can be a common symptom uh, as well because the receptors that this virus attacks that are most common in the lung also line the GI tract. So for some people, that may be part of the presenting symptoms as well. I heard something about uh, loss of uh, taste and smell. Yep. Yeah, that's actually actually seems to be true. So just in the reports that have been coming out in the last 48 hours. Again, these are things that aren't going to apply to everybody, but we're seeing that actually a fairly large number of people, uh, kind of initial symptoms of the coronavirus were loss of taste and initially loss of sense of smell and loss of taste. It does seem to recover as the illness recovers, but that's uh, if you were to notice that, wow, that's really weird. I can't smell anything right now. I've kind of lost my taste. Currently, that could be a good marker that you may be coming down with. And just uh, if, if you do have any of these symptoms, again, the Corona hotline that we've set up, and uh, we are, uh, you know, working with teledoc uh, type of folks out there to get you in front of doctors to have them uh, help assess your symptoms and so forth. Suggesting questions that you want to get to? Well, yeah. Why don't we Why don't we move to the questions, and I'll turn it over to Justin if you want to start uh, asking Dr. Iverson some of the questions that we received. So I'll be reading from a screen. The screen's a little uh, far away, so just bear with me. Yeah. The reason Justin's reading is I didn't bring my glasses, and I can't see it. So I'll be honest. So I, I need a translator here. So we did not rehearse this or do a dry run. So bear with us. Thank you. Uh, so question number one. In January and February, there was a nasty bug going through the Hirschbach office. Many of those who went to the doctor uh, were just told it was an upper respiratory infection. It is likely this infection was it, is it likely that this infection was actually COVID-19? Is there a way to get tested after the fact to see if a person has already had it? So for the first part of the question, which is when that bug was going through in January, was it COVID-19? And almost for certain, I can say it was not because really the first case in the United States was described around January 15th, and that was in the Seattle area. So if that was kind of going around here the first part of January, uh, nothing in my business is all or nothing, 0% or 100%, but I would say it's almost 100% that that was not COVID-19 here. Uh, as far as testing, and it kind of actually brings up maybe a little tangent question, which is, do I kind of develop immunity uh, if you if you develop uh, if you've had the infection? So the thinking is that yes, you will develop a short-term immunity, like you do for most viruses. But since the coronavirus is in a category of viruses that's very similar to the common cold, we don't know if it's going to be a long-lasting immunity. For example, like chickenpox, if we get chickenpox, you get it once and you don't get it again because your body has an immunity, and as soon as you get exposed to a chickenpox virus, it fights it off and you don't get it. We just don't know enough about this virus because literally a little over three months ago, this virus really didn't exist in the human population. So great question about future testing. I think we're just too early to answer that more definitively at this point. 
Um, next question. There are some conflicting posts on Facebook stating that Advil or ibuprofen can fuel the virus. Is any of this true? So again, a really good question, and the answer is we don't know for sure. I was just uh, listening to kind of a medical update last evening, preparation for today to make sure to be up to date as I could, and the experts that I were listening to said they don't really know where this is coming from. There's a theoretical basis on how ibuprofen works and where this virus binds to certain receptors that make us think potentially it could make people either a little more susceptible to more severe cases of the disease. But right now, as best as I understand it, that is just theoretical. We have not, we don't have proof to back that up. So that's one of those things where we, you know, social media, especially in these times, can be a very wonderful tool for many things. It can also work against us a little bit. These sorts of things can get out there and can get ahead of us. And once they take off, it's hard to reel them back in. So my answer to you at this point is, I don't know the answer to the ibuprofen question. We don't think it's a major factor at this point. If you're feeling a little crummy and you want a little something to kind of ease your symptoms, Tylenol should be just fine. Same way if you use ibuprofen for joint complaints. If you want to be extra safe, use Tylenol. Uh, but I don't really have anything concrete that I could look you in the eye and say it's bad to take ibuprofen at this point. I'm talking about the social media before we get to the next question. We've seen some other things out there like, hey, if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds, uh, you're good, you don't have it. Or if you know, drink water, take sips of water every 15 seconds because it'll flush it into your stomach and you'll get the acids that'll kill it. Things like that. Can you kind of talk about some of those things that we've heard? So the way I would kind of handle most of those things is that if, so like I have patients with diabetes I see a lot and they'll come in and they say they saw something on the Saturday morning infomercials that this is going to cure their diabetes and my kind of response to them is is that if that were really true you wouldn't need to wait for the Saturday morning infomercial to find the cure for diabetes and it's the same sort of thing with, with these things I mean if if there was really good evidence that this stuff worked to prevent the spread of coronavirus to cure coronavirus it would be front and center and it would be out there and so kind of again you your common sense you know if it sounds too good to be true it probably is and so the things that you just mentioned flushing with water I mean there's nothing wrong with keeping hydrated staying healthy if you read stuff to eat your vegetables I mean those are all good things to do they help us just in general keep healthy if there isn't anything specific about them that's going to be antiviral or fight the coronavirus particularly well all right, so next question. How long do you estimate social distancing and mass quarantine will be necessary preventative measures with what we currently understand about the virus? So that is the not million, not billion, that's the trillion dollar question right now that the, the experts are truly struggling with. And, and it's, it's, we don't have the answer right now. If, if we had our way, we would continue these for some period of time further because we know they work. Social distancing does limit the spread of disease. There's no question about that. But we have to kind of balance that with the challenges that our economy is facing right now. And I think you saw a little bit in, in President Trump's news conference yesterday. He's getting input from the business sector that we need to open things up sooner. He's getting input from public health officials saying it's too soon to do that. I don't know where that that debate, how the weighing of the priorities is going to come out. 
that truly is a, the Herculean challenge that the people making policy are facing uh, right now. And so stay tuned. This is going to be a forefront in the news in the, in the coming weeks as to when we feel safe. And my hunch is, and again, this is just my hunch, it'll probably be done geographically, meaning areas that clearly are experiencing lower rates of disease, people in general are farther spread out. Likely will be areas that will loosen first. High density areas like New York City, which is literally still seeing an explosion of cases right now. They truly are grappling with, are they going to exceed their capabilities in their healthcare system to handle all the people right now? Likely that's going to be slower uh, to relax. Again, just my opinion, my read right now, uh, nobody has that answer uh, currently. See countries, you know, we, we obviously see Italy that uh, this is probably one of the worst country right now. Yeah. Um, I was hearing today that, you know, maybe uh, Italy is, is starting to see fewer deaths. Uh, it's still a horrible situation right. there, starting to see fewer new people come up with, with cases. And that maybe we're, you know, as far as timeline goes, a couple weeks away from Italy. And, and then they said Italy was maybe two weeks behind South Korea or something like that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, those are always a little difficult yeah. to compare because each country's measures that they took. So some of the things that they did, for example, in South Korea is from the very get-go, they basically traced anybody that had been, had been exposed to anybody they could have been in contact with. We're kind of beyond being able to do that. That here and so so again really the next couple of weeks are going to be really important to see if the measures that we've taken so far have been able to kind of blunt the curve so that we don't get into the situation that Italy is in and so we're still a little bit hampered by uh, the amount of testing that we have done and can do uh, we just have to keep our fingers crossed and, and hope that we don't follow the same curve that Italy did. So, so, if, so, if I can add yeah, on to that the, the Italy question is unique so Italy has now had uh, two days in a row of declining uh, reports of positives. Uh, the country also has some very unique demographics and social structures as well. So one, they're the second oldest country in the world, uh, and the portion of Italy uh, in the north that's impacted are where a majority of those uh, older residents live. Um, two, you have a culture where it's very common that people have smoked for 40, 50, 60, 70 plus years. So there's susceptibility to some of those upper respiratory uh, challenges or issues with their lungs are going to be a little bit higher. And then third, uh, I'm sure there are some Italians on the line. Um, the, the social structure in Italy is very unique where many of the senior citizens live by themselves, uh, but they do weekly, regular, uh, big family dinners where you have multiple generations interacting with one another on a weekly basis, uh, which has really increased the spread of the virus there. So and I think some of the things happening in Italy are unique to Italy, but uh, if we don't take the same social distancing precautions, uh, that can certainly replicate itself. Other questions? Can you scroll up just a little bit? That one's cut off. Yeah, uh, take jumped in there. Okay. Um, there, there are reports of Hong Kong getting a spike of cases from travelers returning and bringing it back. Are these new cases or original strain or a possible mutation that is causing a new infection? 
Have there been studies on the possibility of the virus mutating, causing those who have already been infected to be infected again? Really great questions. And so the statistics that I've seen do show an increase in Hong Kong recently. I don't think we entirely understand why. If it's people traveling back into the country, most likely probably, uh, or whether it's just once you start kind of releasing some of the restrictions and people become mobile, more mobile, whether that's uh, starting to cause an increase, don't, don't know for sure. The mutation question is very interesting, and it does look like we already are seeing some mutations in the virus. Now, some of that may not be all bad. What we've seen in this country is that the original strains that you saw in China and the Wuhan area, and then originally some of the earlier sites in the United States, appeared to be a little bit more of an aggressive uh, strain than some of the variants that we're starting to see more recently. Now again, still too early to say, uh, and it's still too early to say whether this mutation is likely going to affect whether you can get reaffected. Most likely not uh, at this point. So I don't know that I'd worry too much about that. Let us hope that some of the mutations that we're seeing may actually be less virulent, less uh, severe in the in the disease that they that they cause. But again, at the rate things are moving, these are just stuff that's literally getting pushed out in the medical literature and um, still being digested in terms of what what it means down the road a little bit. So whoever asked the questions right on top of some of the current thinking, uh, still got a lot to move in. Next question. If we are told to stay home and self-medicate, what medications should we have on hand and how many how how much of each per person in the household? Are all recommended medications available over the counter? So just from one of the uh, local drugstores in town here. We've gotten a press release from them, and it does not look at this point that supply of medications is going to be a problem in the in the near future. The supply houses that they are getting their uh, stock items from uh, are said to have like four to six months or more supplies on hand. So I would just say fill your prescription when you need them. Keep them on hand. Uh, I don't know that you need to be doing much different at this point. You don't need to stockpile or things like that. It looks like uh, the supply chain is is good uh, right now. Stay tuned. If that starts to change, then uh, we'll have to deal with it. But nothing, I think, special. You have to do different at this point. As far as the over-counter question, yeah. is there any over there? Uh, you talked about Tylenol earlier. Yeah. There, yeah. you know, they've got uh, you know cold, flu-like symptoms. Any yeah, so I mean, recommendations? Not, not really. I mean, so anything that you can buy over the counter just for symptomatic relief. So if you're having fever, having aches, that's where your Tylenol or acetaminophen comes in. If you're just having trouble sleeping because you're congested and kind of coughing, your NyQuil is your cold medicines, you can do those uh, just as you would otherwise. Because again, this is just a virus like other respiratory viruses, except in a subset of people, it's causing more severe illness and it tends to be spread a little bit more easier. So nothing, again, especially you need to do or necessarily have on hand because uh, they're all just going to be kind of for symptomatic uh, at this point. Next question, can you have a false positive or a false negative when testing for coronavirus? Yeah, and again, really good question. So some of the some of the issues that have to do when you roll out a test, such as the coronavirus testing kits, is that normally when we develop new tests in medicine, we study them very carefully and we understand that if you tested 100 people, would it detect all 100 people or does it miss some, which would be a false negative, or does it detect some and say a person has it when in fact they don't. That's called a false positive test. Uh, sensitivity, meaning like, 
does it pick up every case that's out there? So if, if I tested a person, it's not going to miss any, uh, or how specific it is, meaning if it comes back positive, we know for sure you have it. So again, those are all normal sorts of things that we'd like to do ahead of time before we roll a test out, but we've had to roll this test out more quickly. So there's no test in medicine that's perfect. So that means that there will be some false positives, meaning that if you get a positive test back, you actually don't have the coronavirus. And there are going to be some false negatives, meaning it says you don't have it and you do. We think it's a pretty good test at this point, being just in kind of general terms, 90 plus percent accurate, but we're still getting a lot of information back on that. So we take it and we interpret it as the test says, but I think in all fairness, it, like any other test in medicine, there is no perfect test that's right all of the time. And so in this case, we are hopefully erring on the side of, you know, saying you have it and you don't so that you can protect yourself and make sure we don't infect others. Uh, but but it's going to miss a few either way. It's just, it's just the nature of the beast. Before we go to the next question, maybe staying on testing this weekend, we got a little excited hearing about this company in California that uh, has machines that are already out there testing for like HIV and tuberculosis and so forth that can give test results back within 45 minutes. Uh, can you I've actually reached out to the company uh, as well because we would love to get our hands on this test. Yeah. And Do you have a machine or is it using the same? So, I understand there's about five so thousand machines we, in the United we, States. We actually have the machines. You have the machine? We're excited about it. All right. Um, but, you know, it, it's been FDA approved as of the weekend, but they still need to mass produce. They still need to distribute. We, we, we don't know when they will be readily available. And I, I would suspect they're likely going to go to your hotspots first, yeah. uh, such as New York City or Washington sure. State. Um, but there are other tests that are available. Um, those tests are here in Dubuque as well. Uh, it's generally anywhere from about a one day to a four day process to get results. Uh, and the, the, the tests are readily available. They're just not being handed out every step of the way. We, we've seen this where a lot of folks have come in just wanting to get a test just because sure. even though there's no I'd like to get symptoms, there's there's nothing that would indicate they need the test. Right. So if, if we are too loose with our protocols for using the tests, eventually we will have no tests. And then the people that truly do need it won't be test available. So last so, week when we talked, at least here locally in Dubuque, I asked the question, how many tests do we have in Dubuque? The answer was like four or five or something. What's that number like to that? I, I, I don't want to give you a magical number, but there are tests for patients that come in okay. and they don't make it through the COVID-19 questionnaire. There are tests available. Yeah. The other thing is just practical aspects. I mean, when you do a test on a person, you have to be in protective gear for doing it. And protective equipment is a very short supply now. So, so again, we have to kind of balance resources. So if we kind of burn through all our protective equipment, sampling people who have a low risk of having a disease, now we don't have protective 
equipment for people in emergency rooms and intensive care unit for taking care of people who have the disease and we have to protect them. And so, so some of these, again, are balancing resources that when you don't have an infinite or unlimited supply of something, then we have to make some choices that are, are not necessarily easy. But that's in the healthcare field, that's what we're trying to do is to balance those things. And so when someone calls and says, we can't test you now, it isn't necessarily because we don't want to or maybe don't think it isn't a good idea. It's just we have to allocate our resources the best way that we can. And, so. and you know, be, behind the scenes, there is a, a very safe process at our organization and many organizations out there where uh, we have been doing a lot of telehealth visits. And then if there's something in that visit, we would actually send them to our upper respiratory COVID-19 clinic. And at that point, a physician would see, see you wearing appropriate protective equipment. And uh, if there's something that stands out on that questionnaire, uh, there is a test available, but there's, there's a process to follow. So. so you've set up, it sounds like you've set up a special testing area for COVID. Exactly. So, and the, basically the patients that are going to the, this clinic, those are truly our sick patients because we don't want to be sending healthy families to sit in the lobby with a bunch of sick patients and potentially be vectors for carrying the virus to other places. So this this has completely turned our world upside down over the last couple of weeks. Well, hopefully, I mean, we're seeing some uh, companies I saw this morning, like uh, Ford Motor Company, starting to produce protective masks. I'm talking about General Motors producing ventilators, ventilators and respirators and so forth. And yep. So yep. Tesla doing things and so forth. Mobilizing all the vast resources that they have. Yeah. I wasn't alive during World War II, but it very much sounds like, it, like, like what it was then. So. Any other questions? Uh, next question. Uh, how can we distinguish normal seasonal allergies from coronavirus symptoms? So some of the symptoms are going to overlap. So kind of like your runny nose, sneezy, um, you know, even low cough symptoms can be allergy. If you take an antihistamine, which uh, usually helps allergy symptoms respond, you should see an improvement. So if you took a, a Zyrtec or whatever allergy medicine you use and your symptoms gets better, it's probably not coronavirus. Uh, if you're having a fever, that's generally not going to run with allergies allergy symptoms, so uh, symptoms kind of progressing. So again, allergy symptoms are just kind of there, just kind of stuffy, feel a little crummy, but neither better nor worse most days. But if today you're a little stuffy, tomorrow you got a sore throat around a little fever, and the next day you're starting to get some tightness in the chest, I mean, that's not gonna be allergies. So, uh, so a little overlap, but there also are things that are gonna help you distinguish. Next question, is it true Dubuque County isn't testing patients or people with symptoms for specifically COVID-19? So again, that's a little too broad a statement. So again, just as Justin went through a minute ago, I mean, we, we do kind of have uh, a set of questions that if a person calls in and we feel that they're at high risk and uh, or have clinical conditions that warrant testing, we do have available testing. We feel they're in very low risk uh, categories for just the reasons that we went over a minute ago, probably are going to probably not recommend testing at this point in time. So again, kind of stratifying on the basis of risk and available uh, staff and resources to do that. And 
Next question, if you have not been exposed to anybody at risk and you have no fever, but you have a stuffy nose and a sore throat, should you get tested and or quarantined? Again, I mean, these are, these are all good questions. And so kind of what we're trying to say is if in that case you're otherwise healthy, not having much symptoms, to be on the safe side, kind of a self-quarantine would be reasonable. Uh, when when we get access to more resources and tests, then those might be situations where we would test so that we can keep people functioning. If you test negative, you can just kind of go about your business. And if you're positive, we get to the appropriate quarantine. In, in the meantime, uh, we're trying to limit otherwise healthy people with minimal symptoms coming into situations where they could potentially uh, be exposed or uh, are likely gonna do just fine. So again, um, most of these are going to just run their course and you're not going to require any special treatment. So just kind of self-isolating and letting it run its course is probably a pretty reasonable approach to take and not testing at this time. So next question, if you recover from COVID-19 and carry antibodies, is there a chance you could still be carrying the disease and shedding virus? So again, great question as we kind of go about learning. We don't know for sure how long people are going to shed virus, but more importantly, we don't, you can actually shed virus after you kind of run the course, but it may not be virus that has the capability to infect another person. So there are some studies suggesting that, you know, for a week or two after, there may still be a virus, for example, in stool specimens, but we don't know if that virus is actually able to infect another person. So that's a bit of a challenge right now. So that's going to be one of those areas we're going to have to stay tuned as this disease follows along and we get more information we'll be able to answer that uh, better uh, at this but at this point that's still a little bit cloudy area I don't know that I could honestly answer at a week or at two weeks you, you're not shedding any virus that can affect others I don't think we actually know the answer to that yet. so next question any extra advice for pregnant women or any changes you see you see coming to the Dubuque area in parts of New York partners are not even allowed in the delivery rooms do you see anything like that happening in this area anytime soon? Good question. I unfortunately am not an OB physician. Um, and obviously, if you're pregnant, that's those are really important questions. I would actually direct you back to your obstetrician, midwife, whomever you're working with. They're going to be a little bit more involved in their specialty areas to kind of help guide you with that. So I apologize. I can't answer that a little bit better for you. Uh, but, but your OB doctors would be happy to kind of take that up with you and let you know kind of what's going on in the new period. So next question, as a general statement, we haul food to many parts of the country. This service is critical to the infrastructure of the country. Can you confirm the virus is not foodborne? To the best of my knowledge right now, I can confirm that. So uh, could we learn more information down the road? Absolutely, but I think you can feel safe. Uh, and, and to my understanding at this point is that that's not an issue. And would it add as an extra precaution, like uh, heating something up, and would, would that be? Yeah, I mean, so those sorts of things that 
you know, things that disrupt, you know, how hot it has to be to kill a virus, you know, boiling for how long, just getting it warmer and kind of dovetails in with another common question we get, which is, you know, as the temperatures start to warm in the Midwest, is that going to, you know, make the virus go away? And, you know, the answer is we're hopeful that we've seen in other viruses that seasonal trends, you might see that happen, uh, but we don't know for sure with that. So again, heating it, how much of an effect that has might very well be helpful, but I don't know that we have enough to say, like, if you did that, that you could feel completely uh, safe doing that. But in general, things like that tend to disrupt any sort of infectious agent. So it's, it's not going to hurt anything. How much will help? I'm not sure. So yes, yeah, so keep, we need you guys out there. Uh, can't thank you enough for what you're doing. Um, just be smart, be cautious, but I think the things that, that you're hauling and that you're bringing, uh, you, you're still safe using the precautions that you can implement to keep doing that. Next question, have we learned anything from the other countries that have been hit that can help us? Yes, I mean, I think some of the things that we're doing for the protective measures, the, the, the social distancing that we're doing, things that uh, limit the spread of the disease, that's the most important thing that we've learned. And, and I think that's going to be the challenge in policy as we move forward is how long we need to keep those things in place and how strict they need to be to prevent the virus from going up that exponential curve. You know, in terms of other healthcare, especially people that work in intensive care units, they're talking with colleagues in Europe and in China and learning, you know, when people get sick, what, what are the sorts of things that we can do? Because basically when your lungs have been affected with a virus, it's what we call supportive care to get you through the virus until your body's able to fend it off. Unless some of these other medicines that we're hopeful for have uh, more active antiviral capabilities. So yes, we're definitely learning from other healthcare physicians other hospitals, public health officials in other countries, what works, what doesn't. Those are the things that are going into the policies and the things that I'm sharing with you today to try and help keep us all safe. So absolutely. All right, next question. I apologize if this was already covered. I've heard a fever is the first indication. How quickly do other symptoms follow? So what I would say is fever is one of the symptoms, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the first symptom. So we see a lot of people who just start off with a little scratchy throat, the stuffy nose, runny nose. Uh, those oftentimes occur uh, before the fever develops. Other people kind of just kind of comes all at once. You get the fever and the other symptoms. So I would just pay attention to the symptoms in general. The chronology can be variable, chronology meaning the order in which they appear, but typically the milder symptoms first, and then if it's going to progress, then into the, the deeper respiratory symptoms. Next question, can the severity of coronavirus vary from person to person? Can you have, a, have coronavirus and only have mild symptoms, i.e. sore throat, fatigue for four to five days, and then have the symptoms go away completely? Absolutely. So again, symptoms vary from person to person. and. Currently, we're not on board that it continues. 80% roughly of the people who develop coronavirus, it's going to be these milder symptoms. Sometimes it's even shorter duration. I've seen reports for people they feel kind of rough for a day, and then the next day they start feeling better. Uh, there is some subset of patients where you're getting better for several days and then become worse again for a little bit. Uh, those are some of the people that end up uh, sicker in the hospital. Um, so again, broad spectrum of 
kind of the progression of symptoms, how long they last, very much uh, very varies from person to, to person. Next question, if you have. I think we covered that one. Yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. covered that yeah. one, yeah. I think we're down this, to just uh, the last this one. I, I don't remember any questions with stakes in here. So uh, the, the non-essential people are still buying all the hand sanitizer and stakes before the essential people can get to them. Is there a prediction as to when the essential people will be able to get these items? So again, that's kind of a public policy decision. So, you know, if we're not fortunate and things start curving in the right direction and this prolongs a little bit, then public policy officials may actually have to do some things to help protect the essential people, whether it's healthcare providers, the people like you that are transporting the goods that, that we all need, then you may see some, some changes in that. I haven't heard of anything coming like that right now, but uh, just have to see. And for, for our drivers out there that are having trouble getting uh, some of these cleaning products, uh, we are we do have some good news. Uh, our chem station company has come through with uh, some of these supplies. And so uh, we are now, we've got to get it from concentrate form and, and uh, get it uh, distributed into the bottles and out to the terminals and so forth. So we should have a lot more available uh, within the Archbach family here very soon. And we, as we were on, Bianca had an order of hand sanitizer that'll be here by Thursday. So we'll have hand sanitizer Thursday, Friday, and then next week. So we'll be a study stream coming in the week. Great, great. Last question, Bob? Last question. Okay. If you have had a child out of state for 10 days, is there any other precautions you recommend other than the social distancing and has been on flights both there and back? Yep, so again, uh, we've actually had some people in, in our office that have had kids coming back from college and such, and, and that's exactly what we're doing. It's just kind of social distancing, some gone a little further, and just kind of self-quarantining at home. Uh, again, if it's domestic travel, um, you know, there aren't clear guidelines that you have to do that. If it was international travel, then probably erring on the side of self-quarantine at home for 14 days would be a reasonable within the home. Again, you know, maybe have a separate bathroom, separate towels, you know, just again, common sense sorts of things that, you know, are gonna be less likely to transmit the virus from one person uh, uh, to another, uh, common sense sorts of things like that, but nothing else other than that that I've recommended this time should be fine. Well, as we wrap up here, I guess, uh, any any final comments, uh, Justin, Dr. Iverson, would like to? My final comment would be again just to, to thank you all for taking the time to join with us. We are all in this together. We can't thank you enough for what you're doing. We depend on you. We're here to help you in any way uh, we can, whether it's our office in Dubuque or wherever you're at across the country. Healthcare Providers of America want to help you. And uh, uh, to the extent that you know we can help, Brad, reach out to us. Um, we're, we're happy to do what we can just from your standpoint. No, uh, just, just to reiterate, really, that I know it's scary. It's a, it's a time of high anxiety, um, but the, the sky is not falling down. Um, just take common sense precautions. Uh, it's, it's even hard for me to keep my fingers out of my mouth, picking my teeth or touching my face. Um, but you know, keep your hands clean. Keep your fingers away from your face. Uh, good hand hygiene. Uh, common sense stuff. Really, that's goes a long way. That's how we're going to beat this back. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, my nose has been itching for like the last half an hour here. So. You can't touch <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
So, well, thank you so much um, for both of you for joining us today. Uh, we know that uh, you, uh, you know this is a very, very busy time and an ever-changing uh, situation and uh, your resources are limited. We wanna thank you for not only joining us, we wanna thank you for everything that you guys are doing to uh, help the country. You're truly on the front line uh, here uh, fighting this war and, and we can't thank you enough for everything. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the What's Your Drive podcast. We'd sure appreciate it if you subscribe or shared the podcast with a friend. Leave us a review. And if you'd like to see more, stop by our website at whatsyourdrive-podcast.com. While you're there, leave us some feedback on the show and share your future topic ideas. Roll safe, everyone.